Mm-hmm. Efficacious. Yeah. That's a big yeah, one. That's my medical lingo coming mm-hmm. out. Medical school's paying off. <laughs> <laughs> just, just be impressive. Yeah. Don't worry. We know you have the MD. <laughs> we know. We know already, okay? Dear Sigmund. Okay, so, whoa, way to come out on the Amish. Um, we kind of left the last episode really hanging there with um, kind of some strong strong statement about the Amish, I guess we could say. So why don't you just sort of backtrack for a minute and um, tell us what you really meant or just break it down for me? Yeah. Uh, so there, as we all know, that closed gene pool, we all know, well, closed gene pools are really uh, – Kind of What's these a closed echo gene chambers. Pool? So, like all the pools have been closed. That's so okay. What's a closed <laughs> gene pool? <laughs> uh, you can't wear your genes at the pool anymore. The um, the idea behind a closed gene pool is that, well, just any gene pool is anywhere you can collect genes to kind of cross your genes with another person. So the way that um, DNA works is that you bring half the DNA, Shan, and then your husband brings half the DNA. Oh my and God, how paternalistic of you. Right. How limited. <laughs> but what if you, I had a donor? <laughs> well, when you when you start having uh, relations within smaller and smaller uh, nets of those genes, you start to provide the opportunity for um, genetic error, like translational errors in the genetic code. So like it's not a family tree, it's a family stick? Y- yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> Similar. Okay. And also why, and, and not not to relate you know, any, any human to dogs, but this is why when you go to a dog breeder, you can see, you know, oh, this dog now has all these eyeball issues and all these hip issues and all these bone and tumor issues. So overbred dogs. Yeah, or kind of interbred. Or, okay. Yeah. In, in, inbred or in, innerbred dogs. Oh, you used the word inbred. Inbred, I did. Are you calling the Amish inbred? Well, Did no. you take the long way to get to telling us that? No. Oh, God. <laughs> Not real. I, I will say that I just wanted to. I don't even know where we were in the last episode that we ended up there. Maybe that's what I wanted to do at the beginning of this episode to say uh, that was the, a long tangent that I went on last time we were talking. And I realized that half the times I was talking, I was just kind of going down these long canals of thoughts. Um, and uh, I'll probably try to stick to the questions more, okay. I think, this time. Okay. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Dear Sigmund. This is Dear and Sigmund. I'm Shannon Miller, a licensed clinical social worker. Yeah. Who are you? I'm Dr. J.P. Shand. S-H-A-N-D. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a board-certified forensic and uh, general psychiatrist. Dear Sigmund, I feel like I may have bipolar disorder, but I'm not sure what a diagnosis looks like or what the qualifying factors are. Can you explain bipolar disorder and what options are for people who may feel like they are struggling with this? Mm. This is a really... Everybody thinks they're bipolar. I hear that all the time. Or... Their mom's bipolar. You know, I'll ask, hey, do you have any family history of any psychiatric conditions? They'll be like, yeah, my mom's got bipolar, my sister's bipolar, my dad's bipolar. Everyone's like, oh, well, are they diagnosed? No, no, no. They're just really angry and mean. And, but know, they have they some good days. They flip on a dime. Yeah. But they have some good days. But if it's a bad day, they'll be going to be really mad at you. Um, so there is a very specific DSM-5 diagnostic classification for this illness. So in other words, there's very specific benchmarks that you have to hit in order to 
get this labeling. Yes. And when we label off the DSM-5, all we're doing is applying a label rather than saying this person displays all of these symptoms. We're just shortening it and saying bipolar one or bipolar two. Mm -hmm. But really what we're saying is we're seeing these symptoms. Yes. In yes. a person. Right. Yeah. Or, and or and diagnoses can be fluid. Very much so. And often well. are. Right. Yeah. And we're diagnosing based on what we observe and what we're told. Yeah. So well, this doctor said this, and this doctor said that. Right. Well, yeah, what did you walk in telling them, right? We we diagnose the information given yeah. and the information observed. That's exactly right. Right. And when we say that, the, and let me just clarify, when we say that these are fluid, they shouldn't be, right? If you get the right diagnosis, uh, then it shouldn't be fluid. Uh but the problem is that some of psychiatry is subjective. Um, so, so these diagnoses really should not be fluid, right? The diagnosis itself, this is a medical condition, right? And that should not be fluid. But the problem in what appears to be fluid across doctor to doctor is that the individual is not presenting the full picture of everything that's happening so dr house was right people lie B people do lie or people and, and just omission or are current in a depressed state and they can't remember when they were manic or you know that that um certain symptomatology can be misconstrued but what does manic even mean that's a great question right, we'll start there right let's start to start right. really concrete mania is an acute period that lasts one or more weeks of and there is a certain, I, I don't know if we want to go into all the diagnostic criteria, but there is uh, elevated mood, grandiosity. Grandiosity is this feeling of um, extreme importance or, or uh, larger than life capabilities. Yes. Um, you know, I've got a million dollars in the bank. I, I know it and I just have to access it and then I can do this or that. Or, you know, there's these ideas that are kind of larger than life. Flights of fancy type stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and then flight of ideas is another one mm -hmm. too, where you're going from one idea to the next, to the next, to the next. A lot of people call it racing thoughts. Um, you just can't keep a thought in your head because I'm thinking so fast and I can't stop thinking and I just want to go on to the next thing and I'm going to build a birdhouse and then I'm going to learn how to fix the railing and I want to fix the railing I'm going to stop that because I all of a sudden want to start this car and I want to go to the car and you know what I'm going to get this car to Kansas you know what's in Kansas people are in Kansas I like Kansas mm -hmm. you know that is that is mania mm -hmm. and this idea this like pressured rapid speech flight of ideas distractibility irritability these um so it's not just happiness no it's no. not just like hey today's a good day Right. And okay. often, actually. So, yeah, there's a very specific criteria for mania. And then there's this thing called hypomania, which is four or more days of kind of just a little bit less. It's like mania light. Mm -hmm. Like I've got, yeah, you know what? That kind of sounds like me, but it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. And nobody really notices, but I know that I have this, you know, this impulsivity, this, you know, um, I, I do these kind of wild things are so out of character, but it's not totally diagnosable as full-blown mania. That's called, well, if you also have the depressive symptoms on the other side, that's called bipolar disorder, right? Depression is unipolar depression. Clinically speaking, we call it unipolar depression. Mm-hmm. And the other side is bipolar disorder. You have both sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Both it's this extreme grandiosity, extreme euphoria, feelings of excellence that last to like a clinically 
impairing level. It's not just I feel good today. It's actually impairing your life. That you stop like, functioning yeah. in the way that you want to. Yes. People, people will say, you need to go to the hospital. There is something wrong here. Mm-hmm. That's often the way I say it to my pay. You know, people will notice this mm-hmm. in acute manias. Um, and then you have the other side, depression, which is two or more weeks of depressed mood, feeling sad, sad down, tearful, um, that is associated with a bunch of other things. So mm-hmm. five of these criteria, including, um, you know, again, irritability, um, a lot of people distractibility poor attention concentration uh changes in sleep changes in energy um changes changes, in eating yep appetite and some people actually have a change in their appetite in terms of weight loss you know you can gain weight or lose weight Mm -hmm. Uh, so it could be either hyperphagia which is increased eating or uh, decrease in appetite that gets an official word phagia yeah hyperphagia so phagia is eating yes yeah yeah, P H A G I A. I think I need to work that into my everyday language a bit more. Yes. I feel yeah. a bit hyperphagia today. Yeah, yeah, it's clinical. I need to go to McDonald's. Again. <laughs> Excuse me, yeah. yeah, the bill, the credit card yeah. bill, when it comes in. Um, but yeah, but these are clinical, diagnosable mm-hmm. uh, aspects of depression, and uh, and then of course suicidal ideas, right? And it's not just suicidal thoughts, but you know, thinking about death, thinking about the consequences of death, which then can lead to um, planning suicide or thoughts of ways to suicide. And then the next step is taking steps towards the action. Yeah, you know what I thought about over to- So some people will say, yeah, I thought about suicide. It might be better dead than alive. You know, I'd be, or, or here's the difference between active and passive suicidal ideation. Active suicidal ideation is the idea that I would like to be dead and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get myself there. And passive suicidal ideation is this idea that, yeah, if I went to sleep and I didn't wake up, yeah, I'd be okay with that. You know, or my ghost would be okay with it. A lot of people tell me like, well, I wouldn't know how I'd feel about that because I'd be dead. And I'd say, well, how would your ghost feel about it? You know, and that kind of gets at the heart of the issue mm-hmm. of like, you know, would you be okay with that or not? Or do you have something to live for? Um, so that's the idea of passive suicidal ideation versus active. And then active is kind of broken down on these steps of, yeah, I'm thinking about it. I think I could, you know, probably do something about it. Or I, I'm thinking about maybe doing something. Or then I'm specific, I have specific thoughts about what I would do about it. Yeah, I would overdose. Yeah, I'd put my car in a tree. Yeah, I'd do this. Um, And then the next step is, oh, no, I've already gone out and I've... Intent with means. Right. And I've started the plan or I've started acting on the plan. And then there's the attempt. and, And hopefully, you know... You know, by the grace of God, not you know completion, mm-hmm. but uh, but there's that next step of obviously acting on those. Mm-hmm. So, from a therapeutic perspective or a talk therapy, because that's what we do, is it works better in the depressive episodes than it does in the in the mania. Which part? Talk therapy. Talk therapy yeah. for bipolar. Correct. Clients works better in the depressive therapy, right? Because most of our therapeutic techniques. We're meant to treat depression rather than to treat mania. So therefore, naturally, they're more effective. But um, a lot of it just comes down to what we would call psychoeducation, teaching you about what this is, what's going on, so that you can recognize it as it's happening, right? And to sort of close that gap of time between this thing happened and then I reflect on it and I can see it 
to, okay, I'm right in the middle of it, right? We want to narrow the window of time down between the self-awareness of it, right? And we do that through educating, right? So like if you know like, oh, flights of fancy, you know, flights of grandiosity and all that sort of stuff, oh, I'm doing it right now, right? Because we do have awareness of our thoughts and that's that whole mindfulness thing, right? Where you are not your thoughts, but you have them. And so it's more watching your thoughts and sort of that self-monitoring. And even, you know, with apps, there's mood trackers, tracking your mood. Yeah. You know, we teach people track your mood. Let's see, is there regular patterns of dips and highs, right? It's not enough that some days you feel okay. That sounds more like depression. Right, but what happens is, is people lose track of what the baseline is, so that they think that when they feel good, oh, I must be manic. Oh, yeah, Shannon, you get it exactly at the heart of the issue mm-hmm. that I was going to say before. I mean, you kind of touched upon it really early on. Is people are people with major depressive disorder? Again, two weeks plus of you know five or more symptoms of this kind of category mm-hmm. in the DSM five. Um, when they feel good. Yeah, they look back and they say, no, 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 I feel great. Like, those are really good days and I feel good and I'm on top of the world. We really clinically have to be nuanced about that and identifying, well, is that mania? Is that too good? Which is mania, right? When you feel good, we want you to feel good. Feeling too good becomes a problem because then you start doing things that are dangerous or out of character or damaging. Reckless behavior. Yeah. Which can include spending, right? So, like, if you're nighttime ambient spending... You know, clickety click on home shopping network gets way out of control, right? I mean, that's one of the things. It's financial destruction that people do as well during their manic episodes. Big time. Big time. I've seen some really sad cases about that. And just back to your point of of where therapy works. Yes, therapy can be more effective in the depressive episodes or is much more effective in those episodes than mania. Mania is very hard to organize your thoughts in order to even come down to the level of, right. And that's where my field is more effective in terms of medications. So my, you know, I really, uh, well, I can see a great result from medications during acute manic phases. You know, generally speaking, we use mood stabilizers and Mm -hmm. atypical antipsychotics Mm -hmm. used as mood stabilizers. And generally, I'll look at two different things um, in terms of like, is there a psychotic uh, component to this mania? Because you can have bipolar disorder currently manic with psychotic features is the diagnostic code. Um, And that is somebody who is bipolar. They have major depressive episodes and they have manic episodes. Currently they're manic and they're so manic that they're psychotic. They're seeing things, hearing things. They have, you know, Mm -hmm. delusions um, and they're, they're doing these wild things based on these delusions. Um, And then there's, uh, you know, that's where medication can be most effective. Okay. And the mood stabilizers include Depakote, Lithium, Lamictal, uh, Lamictal, yes, mm-hmm. and then the atypical antipsychotics are things like uh, Risperdal, Zyprexa, uh, also known as Olanzapine. Maybe we should use I don't know generic terms. I don't know what we should talk about here, but um, these atypical or second generation antipsychotics, which is the newer generation of antipsychotics that we use. Right. And just to be clear, that I, as the therapist, the clinical social worker. I am out of my scope of practice if I talk about medication. Yeah. I am not allowed to discuss medication. I would send somebody onto you who is a psychiatrist, and that is essentially what you do, is you look at the pharmacological pro- aspect of how do we manage this psychological condition, 
or the yeah. psychiatric condition that they're in. So I handle the talk therapy part of it, and you would handle the pharmacological part of it, which we know that the combination of those two things is the most effective way to take care of mental health. Yeah, or at least depression and anxiety are the two ones that are most susceptible to a combination. There's a, remember right. Katie, so Katie, Katie trials, I can't remember when they came out, but those were identifying the most effective way to deal with anxiety or depression or both uh, is the combination yeah, of the combination two. of an SSRI or an antidepressant or an anxiolytic plus therapy. Mm-hmm. And that is the most efficacious and rapid way to take care of this. Mm-hmm. Efficacious. Yeah. That's a big yeah, one. There's my medical lingo coming yeah. out. Medical school's paying off. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to be impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. We know you have the MD. We know. We know already. Okay. You wear a name tag, a T-shirt. Yeah, one of those doctor doctor. T-shirts. I got one of those for my kid. He wears like little PJs to bed. It's like doctor. He calls yeah calls himself doctor when he goes to bed. It's pretty cute. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have another question. Yeah. How to talk about egoism with an egoist? How does egoism tap into mental health problems? And I think. This person is using the term egoism as in narcissism. Is oh, wow. my I was going to say guess. this is more your realm too. So I, you know, and, and and again, you know, as you just indicated, you know, I, I have a medical degree, so mine is really more comfortable in the psychotropic range, which is the common. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the terminology, the medical terminology for medications that we use for uh, behavioral health, psychotropic mm-hmm. medications. Mm-hmm. And this is much more of a uh, yeah, therapeutic intervention. Mm-hmm. So narcissism, I would say there's two different types. There's grandiose, where the person just owns it. They are proud of it. And then there's the vulnerable or the covert, where they're very shy about it. And it takes you a while to sort of figure it out. But um, how to talk with them about it? I mean, well, it depends on what kind you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a covert or an overt narcissist, right? Overt, you just talk about it because they've already owned it and it's a source of pride for them. Covert would be very different, I think. Um, but let's let's just describe a little bit about what a narcissist looks like. So a narcissist is always going to have, or I wouldn't say always, but there's this air of superiority and entitlement to them. Um, they've always got to be on top. Um, they get their superiority from being the most, Mm -hmm. the most of everything, even if that's like the most wrong, wrong, like, oh, you know, um, the most ill, the worst, you know, they are the, you know, whatever superlative you want to fill fill in, but it's always the most of something. Um, and they don't really take responsibility for their own feelings. They blame it on other people. So like, I feel this way because so-and-so, right? Now, we all do that a little bit. Like, well, you said this and now I feel blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, but a narcissist takes it to that next level where they yeah. have no responsibility over their feelings. Well, a narcissist will say that, well, you're being too sensitive. Right. Right. You're just being too sensitive. You know, I'll right. be like, you know, Shannon, you look ridiculous today. I hate your sweater. And you'd be like, oh, come on. That was really mean. Well, don't be sensitive. Right. So there's gaslighting in there, <laughs> yeah. too, because then I'm questioning, like, oh, am I sensitive? Yeah. Am I not sensitive? Is this sweater ugly? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then nice as a narcissist, that. you'd also want that validation. You're craving it. And you want it from all these external sources. 
because here's the thing narcissists don't have the internal validation yeah right so they're always seeking out that source that's going to validate them right they're throwing the big parties they want everyone to tell them how beautiful they look right yeah right but it's insatiable absolutely there is nothing that's going to fill that empty cup and usually comes from damage during childhood right like poor attention from parents or like that vying for the attention that you never get Right. And so you have to be better than the next in order to get that feeling. Right. Of Earning love, basically. Yeah. You yeah. love me if you give me attention. If you don't give me attention, then I'm not worthy of love. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's that earning the adoration over and over. And out of that, then they get their worthiness. Um, but then there's also like this perfectionism to them as well. Like if I'm perfect, I'll get that validation. If I can just be the Martha right. store, if I can just make the house Which then perfect. makes them chronically pissed off, right? Because perfection is elusive. Yeah, Nobody's ever going to be perfect, nor is anything around them going to be perfect. So they not only want themselves to be perfect, but they want the environment to be perfect. And also as a narcissist, you'll find a flaw in whatever perfection is achieved. Yeah, because you didn't control it, <laughs> yes. right? So like if you were in control of the environment, of course it's going to be perfect. But how often are we ever purely in charge of 100% of our environment? So there's always a flaw to find. There's always something to complain about. Yeah. It's very difficult. Like, you know, it's one of real suffering, you know, where, where it, might, it might affect those around them tremendously. A narcissist can really hurt people around them. But I just imagine the pain that the individual is going through as well. I think there's tremendous pain. Yeah. Um, but I also, it's very... In my work with narcissists, one, I don't tell them that that's actually what I've diagnosed them with, because what's the point, right? Because narcissism would be the catch-all term for this um, set of symptoms that I see, Mm -hmm. right? But the word narcissist is so loaded. I don't... It is. It's taking its own sociological term of like pejorative term of, oh, don't be such a narcissist. I mean, I love the origin of the word, right? The narcissist. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Flew too close to the sun. Oh, no, that's Icarus. I love Icarus. Oh, man. uh, So Icarus, the guy built those wings. Yeah. He just wanted to fly. So what's narcissism? He he fell in love with his own um, reflection in in the reflecting pond. Yeah. That's why I'm a therapist. And then, and but to his own demise, right? So he, like, uh, I mean, and gosh, some, you know, somebody's going to call in or, or write us a letter about how terrible my explanation of this is. But uh, I, I believe that he looked into the pond, fell in love with his own reflection, and stayed there staring at himself, in love with himself until he died. And it was it was ultimately the cause of his own demise, and which was why it was a, a, a warning of peril. It was a it was a warning against you know being too connected or in love with oneself. This this is the ultimate demise that you will face if you only focus on yourself. But it's a, but it's a, it's a condition, right? Right. Yeah. And we look at it now and we say, hey, what is the cause of human suffering? And this is why you and I are here today. What is the cause of human suffering? Well, current society and current medicine has identified the cause of human mental suffering into this book called the DSM-5, and we have cate- categorized uh, every one of these mental illnesses and said this is the cause of human suffering you know i mean what leads up to that is you know obviously a nature versus nurture dilemma there's all sorts of debates about that and still the mental health field is one of mystery and intrigue for me until 
you know, my dying days, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. This is why I love psychiatry. Um, It's one of these fields of medicine, and medicine is supposed to be so objective and so solid and really evidence-based. And while psychiatry is, it's one of those that we, (laughs) it's one of those fields that we know so little about. This, This gray matter in your brain, this tangle of synapses and neurons in your brain that causes you to think feel, behave, react, everything that makes you a human other than your flesh and beating heart and, you know, whatever it is, other physical. But this is the ethereal. This is the thing that philosophically makes you, you. And of all the things that we understand about humanity and the human body, we don't know how it works. It is this fluid thing that we are studying and we are trying to learn and we are grasping at theories and understanding the brain. But really, while our understanding of it currently is infinitely better than it was, you know, 100 years ago. Than when we got the vapors. Uh, The vapors. There's ghosts in your blood. Yes. Yes. We need to, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, somebody had a seizure disorder, so we would burn you because you were going to bring ill upon our crops that year. You know, this is like, we have come so really far away from that, which was really just a sneeze in time ago. Yeah. Really. I mean, do you want to talk about the, the duration of humanity and how far we've come in this very, very small sliver of time of the scientific realm? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and we may never be there to understand the way that the brain works. Um, but uh, but right now, I, I love being on the forefront of this frontier of medicine, mm-hmm. you know, and using the knowledge that we have and the science and the evidence-based medicine that we do have to help this thing um, and help the human experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why I wouldn't tell a narcissist that he's a narcissist, because there's no point. It's just how we would label their form of suffering. And what's that going to help? And then ultimately in treatment, we would get to what's causing the profound, insatiable need to be validated. Yeah. Right? So we would dig down to, let's get the proverbial root of it. Where does this need this insatiable need to be validated come from? Who didn't validate you? Why are you seeking validation here, there, and everywhere? And then sort of shore up those those boundaries a little bit. Yeah. Um, and there's got these ideas of the, I think there's an, what is it called? A strong ego narcissist and a fragile ego narcissist. The fragile ego narcissist is one that's hurt very easily and wants to hurt others regularly. Mm. And the other narcissist is the one who's advancing, you know, their their status in life mm-hmm. and getting ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a that was a deep question. These, you know, and it kind of gets back. If you don't know you're suffering, are you suffering? Oh, I know, I know. This could get really deep, and we'll we'll have to start a hey, philosophical <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay, let's bring part two to a close. If you want to keep hearing the conversation, then you simply pick, click on episode three, where we continue the conversation. If you'd like to contribute a question that you would like either JP or myself to answer, simply go to our website, dearsigmund.com, leave us a voicemail message because we really want to hear your voice. 
totally anonymous. I don't have to know who you are. Just listen to your voice. Or you can fill out the question form. Gets emailed directly to JP and myself, and we'll be happy to answer your question on a future episode. Looking forward to it. Yeah. As a disclaimer, uh, this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you have any mental health that you need addressed, you need to talk to your physician or seek professional help. Do not do what we say independent of seeking out your own doctor that knows you best and can curate a treatment plan specific to you. Don't take what we say and override what your doctor says. Be smart about this.